Hi there, I'm Jazzy Cook and you're listening to Dance Season 2, an evidence-based, research-informed dance science podcast. I had so much fun recording this episode with Valeria, who is a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary, working under the supervision of Dr. Sarah Kenny and Dr. Reid Ferber. She completed her Bachelor of Science in Exercise and Health Physiology with an honours thesis in 2018 from the University of Calgary, where her study explored the validity of internal load measures in the elite adolescent dancer population. Valeria's interests include capturing training load using wearable technology, musculoskeletal injuries, periodization in sport, and injury prevention, primarily in the context of aesthetic sport athletes. Her PhD explores measures of load, developing a novel tool to capture load in dancers, as well as better understanding the perspectives of dancers, dance teachers, and dance parents of using wearable technology in the studio. When not involved in research, Valeria works with young developmental and competitive gymnasts as an NCCP Level 2 Women's Artistic and Trampoline Gymnastics Coach. Hi Valeria, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so great to have you on. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for inviting me to come on today. Um, We'll just start with a little bit about yourself. So a bit about your career, how you got to where you are now and where your interest in dance science comes from. Yes, absolutely. So right now I'm a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary. I'm working under the supervision of Dr. Sarah Kenny, and I'm in my third year. And how I got here is quite interesting, some might say. So I did my Bachelor of Science in Exercise and Health Physiology from the University of Calgary here in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And I completed an honors thesis in my final year where I actually met Sarah Kenny and I was really interested in periodization um, for my own experience in training and gymnastics and weightlifting. So when we talked about periodization and dance in our conversations, I learned that there wasn't any valid or reliable measures of load in dance at that time. So my honors thesis focused on the validity of a common measure. So RPE, rating of perceived exertion in adolescent pre-professional dancers. After that, I was I really enjoyed my experience doing research in my undergrad, so I decided to pursue my master's again with Sarah Kenny, and the project for the master's flowed really well from the undergraduate thesis. However, my proposed project was quite large in scope, so I was offered the opportunity to transfer to a PhD program, which is how I'm here, and recently I was also accepted into the wearable technology training program at the University of Calgary, which is the first of its kind in the world. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. Um, and your background's in gymnastics, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was first a gymnast myself. Um, I did a little bit of ballet as part of that because there is some dance and ballet elements that are important for gymnastics. And I've been coaching for the last almost eight years now. Um, so yeah. Unreal, sure. So what are your key research interests then within dance science? So training load, obviously. Um, anything else? Well, really, it's training load and injury, but I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of how does training load relate to injury. I think that's what we're trying to uncover. And I'm taking a step back from that and still trying to learn how do we measure training load in dance? What are the most appropriate measures? What's most appropriate for different dance populations? We have adolescent dancers, we have professional, we have professional, we have recreational, and maybe measures of load are different for all of those. So Yes, I'm interested in training load, but primarily interested in what are some valid and reliable tools and tools that are appropriate for adolescent dancers. Once we have established tools for how we can capture load in dance, 
I am interested in looking at how we can use load to potentially predict injury status in dancers, although that is quite far away. And what we know from sport research is maybe that's not entirely possible because there are so many factors that can contribute to injury that maybe prediction of injury is not possible, but we don't actually know that yet. So um, hopefully I'll be able to uncover that. I am also interested in periodization. Um, however, that's not the focus of my research. I know there's other people looking at that primarily, um, but I, yeah, we are still quite a ways away from that. We need to learn how or discover the ways that we can first measure and quantify load before we can start planning and predicting. Yeah, for sure. That's so exciting for the future. So we know that episode four in season one looks at an overview of training loads and the start of that episode gives a really nice introduction. So if listeners are interested, they can go and take a listen to that first. But could you just give us a refresh for today on some of the key terms that we're going to use around training load, what training load actually refers to and how we measure it? Yes, I like to think of training load as a triangle and each vertex in the triangle is one piece of the training load puzzle. We have the volume of training, the volume piece of training loads, so that is the how much. We have the intensity, which is how hard, and the frequency, so how often. And when you have a measure that accounts for all of that, that's the true training load. We've looked at dance exposure, and that is just the hours of dance training. So that tells us how much. We can look at just the intensity. So if we just measure the RPE from zero to 10 or the six to 20 scale, then that will give us the intensity. And we can look at frequency. So how many times per week do you train? Do you have dance training? That gives us the how often part. But we have to find a measure that can put everything together to give us a true measure of training load. Then we have load that can be measured externally or internally. So externally is typically the physical work that's performed. Some previous dance-related studies have looked at jump count. And more recent work has looked at using wearable technologies such as inertial measurement unit data. And I hope to build on that by also using IMUs to capture dance related movements and to quantify load that way. External load is typically sport specific. So in other activities such as in soccer, they look at the total distance that you run, the distance that you run at high speeds, the number of changes of direction. In basketball, they also look at jump count. So we have to look at the activity that's being performed in order to identify what's the most relevant external load metric. And loads can also be measured internally. And I know it can be sometimes confusing because you're not actually measuring it internally, but that's just how we talk about it. And this could be the physiological response to exercise. So something like heart rate, blood lactate, VO2, or it can be the psychological response, such as the perceived exertion Although I think RP is more accurately a physio-psychological response because a dancer still has to reflect on how hard their session was. Yeah, for sure. So there's a fair amount, kind of has like you've touched on just there, there's a fair amount of training load research in sport, but perhaps this research in sport doesn't necessarily line up with dance. So what do these sports studies suggest about training load? How might it differ to dance? And what are the challenges of translating these sport protocols in the way that they measure and quantify training load to dance? That's a lot of questions. Um, so what do we know about training load in sport? Um, primarily the work is focused on finding that where they found that high loads increase the risk for injury and low loads can also increase the risk of injury. And the acute chronic workload ratio, which was popularized by Dr. Gabbett, I believe in 2016, maybe a bit earlier, um, that's been widely used now and explored. However, recently it's actually been contested because the numerator and the denominator, 
the way that they're calculated, they're almost coupled and then maybe they're not explaining the correct thing. So recently, just in the last maybe two years, there's been some editorials and articles published that, that really break the acute chronic workload ratio apart and try to understand, is it really telling us what it's supposed to tell us? So we don't actually know how train loads relate to dance injury just yet. I believe there was a recent study done by Annie Jeffries from Australia about training loads, injury and illness, um, but that's only maybe the first study. So there's still quite a bit of work to do, especially when we look at sport, there's been so many studies published. So a handful of researchers worldwide are looking at dance training load and dance injury. But as you can imagine, we need a substantial data set to be able to look at the associations and to build some injury models. So these take time to accumulate and to develop and to have good data, both on training load and injury data. Personally, I think that the idea of doing too much too soon, which has been commonly used in sport, can relate to dance. But I also know that dance educators, dance teachers, dance instructors, and even choreographers are also evolving in how they're teaching. I mean, they're able to attend conferences and different organizations and meetings, especially the organization like IADAMS, the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, and able to share ideas and learn from people like dance researchers, which is a really good opportunity for everyone to kind of come together and learn from each other. I think change is happening, but it's probably more anecdotal and not quite evidence-based just yet. Um, overall, maybe in certain areas of the world where there's more dance science research, um, that change might already be more in place, but I can sense that in Canada here, it's not quite there yet. So we're, on, we're in the process of conducting and learning more about loaded injury in a dance-specific population. So then you asked about the challenges of translating sport protocols. And that's a really good question. So external loads, like I mentioned, tend to be sport and movement specific. We can look at activities that have similar movements in dance. So perhaps basketball and basketball, they look at jump counts, they look at jump height, they look at jump frequencies, and they use that to quantify their external loads. So maybe dancers jump a lot. So maybe that's a metric that we can look at, but dance is not basketball. So there's could be much more that we don't quite know about yet. Measures that are used to quantify load also need to be appropriate for the activity. So is it a high intensity intermittent activity or is it a steady state activity? And this primarily is used in the physiological, in the internal training loads. And last, we need to make sure that the measures are appropriate for different populations, such as children, youth, and adults. Looking at the RPE, there could be differences in how each of these three groups perceives their exertions. And if that is indeed the case, then we need population-specific measures. When it comes to external load, these measures are not sport-specific. However, researchers and individuals that are involved in dance, we need to think about the feasibility of using something like heart rate or red lactate in a dance environment. Everybody's been very much attracted to RP because it's so easy to use and it really just requires the dancer to reflect on one question. So it's easy to collect, but something like heart rate or blood lactate, you might need more personnel involved to help do that. And the dancer isn't always able to do it themselves. So in that process, we need to think about who might be responsible for fitting dancers with equipment, who will help to troubleshoot the equipment if it's not working, especially technology can be quite finicky. 
um, who will help to take measures and most of all, who will collect the data, analyze it and interpret it in a way that makes it useful and can be applied to future dance sessions. A sport or a dance scientist come to, comes to mind as the person who might do this, but many organizations, especially at the pre-professional and recreational level, don't actually have the funding to employ even a part-time dance scientist. So it's not very reasonable, reasonable to offload that to the dance teacher or to the dance or to, to the parent, I don't think anyways. There's, there are, they are already doing so much. So there's still lots that we have to learn and figure out what's the best way to apply what's been done in sport to dance. And maybe we have to make some changes um, and use different approaches in order to make this stick and make this work. Oh, amazing. Yeah, there's so much there to think about. So if we start with your undergrad research, so could you tell us a little bit about your process and methods and any key findings? And then also, how did this lead you on to your further research to sort of develop what you had? Mm. So my honors thesis looked at the validity of using uranium perceived exertion in adolescent pre-professional ballet dancers. I looked at comparing heart rate to SRP, so session RP, I quantified heart rate using Bannister's training impulse and Edwards' training impulse. One is more appropriate for steady state activity, so Bannister's impulse, and the other is more appropriate for high intensity intermittent activity. But not only did we look at the association between each heart rate quantification method and session RPE using a regression, but we also looked at the agreement between each pair of measures. So the association tells us that two things could be related or whether they're related or not, but agreement actually tells us if two tools are measuring the same thing. So we found that session RP was not valid in our population and the study is published in the, in the Journal of Dance Medicine and Science in the fourth issue of last year. From that, that led me to ask more questions about how adolescents perceive exertion and I met with several exercise physiologists at the University of Calgary to really help me to understand how I could go about untangling perception of exertion or RPE. We know that two people can perform the same amount of work and have different perceptions of effort. So you and I can do the same session for an hour, do the exact same movements, but we might still have a different perception of effort depending on kind of our day and our fitness, but we also know that the same person can have, can complete two of the same sessions and have different perceptions of exertion. So I can, for example, taking my morning run this morning, I can do the same 10K today and tomorrow, but because of different factors, my perception of how hard that run was could be quite different. So I'm interested in learning more about how other wellness factors like tiredness, mood, motivation, soreness, how I slept last night, maybe, among others, how that influence RPE. Many studies in sport and actually some in dance have quantified load and wellness factors, but to my knowledge, no one has explored in depth how each of these relate to RPE or how different combinations of these factors can influence RPE ratings. Now, the other question my undergraduate research led me to ask was, is the zero to 10 modified Borg scale actually appropriate for an adolescent population? Could it be that maybe younger adolescents understand the anchors differently that are used, especially when you have 
hard, very hard, very, very hard? Like, what are the true differences between that? And I know it is quite subjective, um, but maybe there's something there, especially when, yeah, some of the anchors are just really close and one might not know what the difference is between a six and a seven. So that's leading me to work on developing a different tool that adolescents could use to measure their perceived exertion that would be appropriate for their age and for their cognitive development and where they're at. Yeah, definitely. So that leads us really nicely on then. So looking at your PhD work, could you tell us about the process and methods here of each of your various studies um, and any key findings so far? Mm -hmm. I've described one of my studies, which is looking at other factors related to RP as well, a different way to measure RP that's not using the actual zero to 10 RP scale. The other study is looking at developing a custom algorithm to analyze inertial measurement unit data and to quantify dance specific movements such as jumps, pirouettes, and leaps. There might be other external load metrics that are related to dance. And this is where knowledge about other sport research might help. So I know that in soccer, like I mentioned, total distance that players cover in a session is important as are changes of direction. So perhaps maybe these might also be relevant to dance. That's a big maybe because I don't really know, right? So my external load study is exploratory in nature and will hopefully lead to a better understanding of what movements might be important to quantify in dance in order to use to quantify external load. Jumps, perhaps, yes, because a lot of jumps happen. A lot of jumps are done in, in dance training, but that's not the entire session. They, there could be more. And if you're doing an hour of bar, you're not doing jumps the whole hour. So maybe there's just something else there. And then I mentioned earlier that I'm completing a wearable technology specialization. So that's got in my last two studies, one, the external load, um, the systematic review that I'm doing, which should be out in a few months. So I won't spoil that just yet, it's almost there. And the other is a cross-sectional study that aims to learn more about the perceptions of, of using wearable technology in the dance setting. How do dancers, dance teachers, dance parents even feel about using heart rate sensors, fitness watches, inertial measurement units, other technologies while they are dancing? Sure, yeah, that's so interesting. So what were some of the challenges? They kind of touched on it there, but some of the challenges that you faced in your research and how did you overcome them? So I'm thinking maybe about the challenges of RPE, which we've looked at a little bit, but also of developing and validating protocol. First challenge was I had the opportunity to be on site when I was doing data collection, which was great. And so I kind of had a chance to observe during my undergrad study, how these dancers were completing their RPE sheets. And it was always rushed. They never really had much time, unfortunately, to do it. And many of them would kind of stand with their friends and ask, oh, what did you put down? Okay, that's what I'll kind of put down too. So I felt like they weren't really reflecting on it maybe. And, you know, it, and they were kind of in a rush. So I can understand. Um, but maybe the scale also wasn't entirely easy to use for them. So that's why I'm trying to understand. And maybe there's a different way that they can rate their perceived exertion. The other challenge, and that's been probably kind of for everybody, is, is having COVID. And we have really tight restrictions here on where we can perform research and with whom. So I've had to pivot my work a little bit away from the adolescent dance population, which I'm really passionate about, and that's kind of my main interest, 
Uh, moving to working with university dancers instead, and there's been a bit more research and dance done with university dancers, so um, I still have to become a little bit more well-versed in that. I'm very grateful that my pivot was possible because it still allows me to be on site and to collect data in person, which is one of my favorite parts of research. <laughs> yeah, sure. So any other kind of, you touched on some of the findings already, but anything else that's like interesting or surprising maybe to come out of your PhD or any highlights that you haven't mentioned already? Mm -hmm. So most of my studies are still in progress and systematic review will be the, probably the first one published. The findings are still to come. And I personally think that they'll be actually very interesting because what I'm doing is novel or at least how in depth I'm looking into load and the factors related to load. I mentioned previously that yes, other sports studies and dance studies have collected some data on load, maybe injuries, as well as other wellness factors. But to my knowledge, no one has really tried to untangle RPE and how those wellness factors contribute to RPE. From what I read, authors are just suggesting that further work needs to be done. So here I am doing that further work. And I suppose that's probably because the majority of published literature says that RP is valid and reliable in nearly all the populations that I've kind of read about. But me being the scientist and trained that I am, I still think there's more to that. And with most focus being on professional sport, the literature on adolescent athletes and dancers isn't as abundant as it is in professional sport. Primarily, primarily what professional sport is focused on male populations and where there's abundant research, it's potentially because funding is available to do this kind of research. And there is a part-time or even a full-time sport scientist that's employed that's able to help with data collection and data analysis for this. Yeah, sure. So how might we begin to translate some of your work into the studio then? Because this is such a great opportunity to look at it, I think, given that your research has focused on adolescence. So what are the potential applications for dance studios, both recreational and vocational? Mm -hmm. So we have to remember that dance is not sport, but dance has aspects of sport. And what's really unique about dance is that it has aesthetic components and also athletic components. So it matters not just what dancers do, but also how well they do it. In soccer, it doesn't matter how you score the goal, as long as you get it between the goalposts. It doesn't matter how straight your leg is or how pointed your toes are. But in dance, that's really important. So we have to also think about and remember that dance is largely influenced by tradition, where the methods of instruction are passed down from previous generations. So knowing this, I don't think it's realistic to tell dancers and dance instructors to do something because it works for other sports. Real, we really have to take a slow approach. And in this slow approach, we can gain buy-in from all parties that are involved. Lasting change takes time and happens very slowly. And I think maybe in sport, coaches and athletes are more likely to try new things because if it really does lead to a notable difference in performance, then it could be very important. It might be the difference between a medal or a championship or for the professional sport, there's a lot of money involved, right? With, with athletes contracts and with winning. But in dance, where it's not just about performance, it's also about artistry and beauty and the connection with the audience and conveying a story I think there maybe there is a hesitation to applying scientific training principles because it will detract from the value of dance and making it and make it more like a sport, which we don't want to do. We want to retain the key pillars of dance and what makes dance unique and important and so lovely to watch 
and to perform and to do. So introducing evidence-based training principles needs to be slow in order for those principles to be applied and retained. We can see this already in dance actually with how many companies and vocational schools have a dedicated medical professional in their organization. So a physiotherapist, maybe a massage therapist, a chiropractor, maybe an athletic therapist, or even a medical doctor. And this has increased the accessibility for dancers to receive care quickly and close to studio, if not in their studio. We can also see this with how strength and conditioning is becoming an important supplemental training tool for dancers. I know there is some fantastic work already happening, particularly in the UK with strength and conditioning sessions being offered and available for dancers. And I hope to see this movement can continue as it spreads kind of around the world. Well, given where I'm at right now and what I know, I would like to see a movement where there could be a dance scientist that works with each studio. This person would be instrumental to bridging the gap between research and studio. They would support any prospective health and wellness and injury monitoring and communicate that information in bite-sized pieces to dance instructors, teachers, and artistic staff in a way that they could understand and actually apply in the studio. With daily monitoring, we could move towards periodized dance training. And I can already see a shift occurring where instead of doing more rehearsals before a performance, dancers are given a day off or they have a lighter and a shorter session. But I don't think that's as widespread in the dance community as it is in sport. So we have work to do. And we should remember, and we should remember too that sport is not perfect and scientific training principles aren't always applied there either. Because again, you still have different generations of coaches. You have older and some younger coaches. I think everyone is just trying to do their best given what they know, given what they know. So the more useful information we can communicate to those who work with dancers, the more likely we will be able to see a potential shift in dance instruction and dance training. Something that you kind of mentioned, but just to look a little bit further in depth at it, is that buy-in from teachers is so important. So can you tell us a little bit more about how this relates to your work? And I guess, what do you wish you could tell dance teachers about how dance science relates to their students? Mm -hmm. So my cross-sectional study that's looking on the perspectives of dance teachers of using wearable technology in the studio will hopefully help to answer some of these questions. And I want to learn more about what do dance teachers think about having dancers use wearable technology in the studio? If dance teachers are not supportive of dancers wearing it, then it's very unlikely that dancers would wear it and use it. If dance teachers are indifferent, then dancers may or may not wear it. It would really depend on their own motivations and perhaps other influences like parents and friends. But if a dance teacher is really supportive of dancers using it and even encourages it, then dancers are much more likely to use that technology to remember to wear it. And it really just becomes another piece of their routine. And I'm referring to wearable te technology here as a means of, of training load monitoring. So if we were gonna move in that direction, and we have to be cognizant of how much additional work and effort we put on the dance teachers and the dancers themselves. If the burden is too much, then it's unlikely to be an effective and a long-term solution and to actually be uptaken by the dance teachers. I guess what I want to know is how, say you were like an average dance teacher listening to this and you just have like your studio in like a village hall or a school hall or whatever. How mm -hmm. could you start to, I get it's a reach, like I appreciate it, it's a reach, but how could you start to bridge that gap a bit? Because obviously like if they're not going to wear heart rate monitors, so they don't have the funds or whatever, how can they start to put that into practice, I guess? 
Okay. Well, I'm not a dance teacher, so I have to recognize that what I'm about to say is from a different perspective, but I hope that maybe there's still some useful pieces. For the dance teacher, I think it's important to stay up to date on kind of the dance research that's happening and be able to attend different um, presentations and conferences, especially where you can meet other dance practitioners, dance teachers, and even researchers, and definitely learn about what's actually happening in, in the field. Most often, and I can see this in sport, is research is presented at a conference, but it does take quite a few years before it is actually used in a recreational or a sports setting that's not directly tied to research. So we know that there are some organizations that are super involved with research, but that's kind of the organizations that are used to publish the papers and to collect data on, um, but that doesn't mean that everybody does it right away. So it takes time and there's never any, there shouldn't ever be any pressure to go to our conference, see this and apply it right away. It's just, it's too much, it's too hard and it's not very realistic. Since we're still learning what's best in the dance sphere, again, everybody's leaning to RPE because it's just so easy to use, it's super cheap. However, if a dance teacher were to use it, it would still be quite a bit of work because you have to take time out of your sessions, out of your classes to give your dancers an opportunity to reflect and to answer that, you have to collect that data. So either it's via like an app or even like a Google Sheet I've seen used. And then what do you do with it is kind of the question. You have these numbers. What do they mean? What do you do? And, and I, I know speaking with some dancers, they really emphasize how they don't want to be distilled down to a single number. So any sort of research and load monitoring that we do, we have to remember that we don't want to we don't want to replace a dancer with a number. We have to remember that there's more to dance than just load, than just performance. Again, it's, it's artistry, it's, it's beauty, it's the aesthetics, it's the performance, it's the story that they're trying to convey. So maybe even if their maybe load seems off, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to perform well. Sure, it's been so great to talk to you today and I'm so grateful for your time. Have you got maybe a number one take-home message or anything else you'd like to discuss or mention? Yeah, well, I think the take-home message is that we can't just take what we see as being done in other populations and other sports and apply it directly to dance. We really do have to do dance-specific research and even look further at different dance populations. Like I mentioned, children, adolescents, and adults, and see whether what we're using with professional dancers is appropriate for the adolescent dancer. So just remembering to do our due diligence and not run to do what other sports are doing, to take time and to not feel like the change happens, needs to happen tomorrow. This will take time. Dance research is about maybe 10 years behind sport research, although it is starting to catch up. So it might actually take quite a bit of time for us to get into the, into the culture of monitoring load and even the injury monitoring that's going on as well that's still taking time yeah you put that so beautifully thank you so much for your time it's been so great to chat thank you so much for having me and I hope that you were able to learn something or at least have a few takeaways that you can help uh, that you can use and apply in your own research or in your own practice or in your own work with dancers absolutely for sure talk soon bye useful resources and contact details are in the description box down below Thanks so much for listening and tune in again next Monday for another episode of Psy Dance.